Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world. I'm your host, Florence Adu, and I am back to my world travels with my guests. My next guest is a humanitarian researcher currently carrying out research on exploitation, human trafficking, and irregular migration at Ghent University in Belgium. She is also the founder of CoCreate, VZW. It's a non-governmental organization tackling the effects of human trafficking on society by focusing on the aftercare aspect. Her education, curiosity, and work have taken her to over 40 countries and five continents. We have another certified local citizen, folks. And most recently, she is the co-author of a forthcoming book, Nigerian and Ghanaian Women Working in the Brussels Red Light District. Sarah Adeyinka, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Florence. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks. So let's get right in. So tell us more about where you're from, where you are local, and what is your craft? My name is Sarah Denka, as you rightly said. I'm from Lagos, Nigeria, and I'm based in Ghent, Belgium, the pretty city of Ghent. Okay. Um, my background is in humanitarian aid, and my focus has always been on working with vulnerable populations, whether it's been victims of sexual abuse and sexual violence, or women working in prostitution who were being discriminated against. And then I transitioned to working with victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation. Hmm. I also worked with Médecins Sans Frontières and the rescue ships, doing rescues of migrants attempting to get into Europe via the Central Mediterranean route. And it was after working with MSF that I decided to go into the research field, into academia, because there was so much information and there was so much we were seeing and learning from that I saw the value of having the humanitarian aspect of me combined with the sort of critical thinking aspect of academia. And I feel like putting the two together would be even more effective. Mm. So that's what got me to where I am in Belgium. Okay. So you're from Nigeria, in Lagos. Yes. I'll ask a bit about where exactly in Lagos. Okay. But let me ask you, how did you come to be living, working, and playing exactly where you live? Because you've traveled to many countries and you've, you've mentioned your different studies. So tell us about that journey. I moved to Europe in 2012. I lived in Germany for a few years. And then from Germany, I moved to the Netherlands. I worked in the Netherlands. And that's how I got the job with Médecins Sans Frontières. Okay. And uh, I worked with them until 2016. And by the end of 2016, I already knew something else was coming up. I had another mission in 2017. And then I was just trying to figure out what do I do next? Where do I go? I still want to be plugged in to the field, but I also know it's time to do some research. I need to be able to do something with all this information, all this data that I gather. I think, I mean, it might sound a bit weird, but I feel like going into academia for me was also a form of self-care. I felt like staying on the field and doing as much as I could as a person, you know, with compassion and thinking, I felt like it wasn't enough. And being able to go into academia and write in a way that we could hopefully influence policy, even if it's only a little bit, was something that I needed to do. I needed to leave the field for a while. So I started looking for research opportunities aligned with my field. And I came across the Child Move Project, which is funded by the EU. 
It's the project that's being led by really, really, really amazing professor Ilse Delun. And it's looking at the impact of flight experiences on accompanied refugee minors. So I applied for the project. We were streamlined to two people. The other person was chosen and not me. But then I reached out to Ilsa later and I said, if I fund myself, will you take me? Because I really want to do this research. I want to do research about Nigerians who are being trafficked. And she said, I will take you in a heartbeat. I wish we had more funding. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, I'll find some funding and I'll do it. And then she found funding for me. Nice. <laughs> she brought me onto the project and I became part of the team. And so my focus then was, I said to her, I know the research is about unaccompanied minors, but if I'm going to be interviewing Nigerians on the project, if that's my aspect, I have to interview adults as well, because you have people who are trafficked as minors, but then when they're 18, you know, they're adults, but I want to hear their stories too. And so that was our deal. And she said, yeah, absolutely. So I joined the team and I started doing the research and that's how I moved to Ghent. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you left Nigeria in 2012. Now, was that for academics or what was the genesis of Oh, I see what you're saying. No, I actually, I left Nigeria in 2006. Oh, okay. I moved to Ghana for six months, actually. Uh, (laughs) I really like Ghana. Ghana is very special to me. Okay. Uh, I lived in in, uh, Tema for six months. with In Tema? Okay. Community 12. Okay. I know, I know the place well. <laughs> I was with a Christian organization called Youth with a Mission. I did a training with them for six months. I went back home to Nigeria and knew that I wanted to continue doing humanitarian work, whatever that looked like. At the time, it was with a Christian organization, right? So I just continued working with YWAM. From there, I moved to Tanzania and then to Uganda and... Mm eventually to the South Pacific. So I, I rotated between Fiji and Tonga. And mm-hmm. but then I would go home in between to visit. So that was when I really started traveling, exploring, seeing the world, learning about injustices in other parts of the world. But every single time I came back to violence against women, sexual abuse, abuse of children. At some point I thought, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe I'm supposed to work with child victims of sexual abuse. So I went on a scouting trip to Cambodia. I went to a shelter in Cambodia that works with children who were sexually abused. Two shelters. And I couldn't. After talking to the staff and just listening to them and finding out what they do, I realized that was not the, you know, I don't have the gift and the strength to work with that group. Mm -hmm. And I would rather support the people who can. Exactly. But working Mm -hmm. with children who have been abused is not something that I I feel strong enough to do. But when Mm -hmm. it's adults, I have no problem doing it. Mm-hmm. And that was really good too. And I, I remember just thinking, you know what? It's okay to be able to say, I can't handle this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not feel like crap because I can't. It's not something I can handle, but I can give my money to support the people who are doing it. And mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, can work with adults, which, you know, sure. is the group that I like to work with. And I, I feel enabled to work with. And so, Yes, back and forth between the Pacific and East Africa and going home to visit in Nigeria. And then in 2012, I went to Germany for a course because at the time I was also doing my bachelor's in counseling with University of the Nations, which is a Christian organization, the Christian university that's owned by Youth with a Mission, the organization that I was working with. So I was working with them and studying at the same time. Okay. So you you were... Pioneer of this remote learning from jump. Oh, oh yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
And so I, and you know, it was cool because you got to take courses in different places. I took a counseling course in India, took a different one in Uganda, and I got to have, you know, different experiences of what is counseling and Mm -hmm. how does counseling look in different contexts, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember one of the things, and I'm, I'm deviating a bit, but I remember one of the things that I challenged one of my lecturers about was that Africans grieve in community. Well, Black Africans, at least I can say, we often grieve in community. When somebody dies or there is a loss, people come together and they, and that's how we process our loss. Yes. And so you cannot have a one-size-fits-all mold and say, well, that's how you guys do it. But actually, everybody needs to grieve individually because that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while studying counseling, I started looking at the cultural aspects, how do different cultures grieve? What are the things in our culture that actually help me handle difficult situations today? How are some of the things that I learned as a Nigerian enabling me to thrive and to survive in here in Belgium, for example? But yeah. I'm, I'm deviating from the topic. But then I moved to, to Germany. Uh-huh. Um, I was there for a few years. I worked with Youth with a Mission in Germany. And one of the projects that I helped to start was an outreach to a refugee center there. The mayor of the village had reached out saying that they could not get the Nigerian women in the camp to basically follow any of the programs that they had. They had swimming lessons for their children. They had German classes. They gave them food stuff and groceries and they didn't like it. And he was frustrated. They didn't know what to do. So I said, oh, I'll, I'll do it. I'll go talk to them. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I didn't know there was any such thing as a cultural mediator at the time. Mm. So that's what I was doing really, was mediating between the cultures. And so my colleagues and I went there met with the mayor, had a talk with him. And I remember in the conversation, he said, well, you're Nigerian, you know, you should talk to them. Maybe they'll listen to you. And I was like, uh, okay. So I went and met with the women, you know, but, mm-hmm. and it was basically a cultural clash. Yeah. That's all it was. It yeah. was, we don't want our children to go in the water because they could drown. Why yeah. should we have them go swim in this place? Who's going to be mm-hmm. watching them? You mm-hmm. know, um, mm-hmm. We don't want the groceries because we don't bake. They're giving us all this flour. What are we supposed to do with it? Mm-hmm. They, we just need eggs. We need, you know, they can give us vouchers for the African store or they can give us the money and we'll buy it ourselves. Yeah. But they're giving us all this food, butter and all these things that we don't use. So we end up throwing it away. Yeah. You know, it was like, it was just those things. It was a communication issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very basic. Very, you know, very basic. It's, interesting. it's interesting you say that because... For Europe to have been in that place, in Germany to be in that place, because I mean, there have been generations of migrants, like there's Middle Eastern migrants that have been there. And so for them not to have had the forethought to think, okay, we do, we're Germans, but it's kind of, and I hate to say this is a bit German because Germans are very like structured Mm -hmm. in a box, everything uniform and that type of mentality. So for you to say that happened in Germany, I'm not surprised, but I am. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it's true. Like, you're right. Historically, they've had such a history, a rich history of migration. And Mm -hmm. you would then think, okay, you should, even if you say we don't want to give them cash, because we, as a policy, we don't, but then perhaps set something up, have an arrangement with one of the African grocery stores where you give them the vouchers instead, you know, something of that sort, instead of having all this food wasted. And so the women were donating the food to people who wanted them. They were and so so that's when I came in with, I remember my colleague Leona and a few other people, and we built, we just started building relationships with the women. 
and explaining to them why they wanted their kids to learn how to swim, why the women wanted to help with them learning German, because that would be beneficial for them. And right. For example, helping with their kids with homework, reading some, you know, official letters, integrating a bit more into society. Just, you know, it was really just communicating mm-hmm. clearly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not coming in with the, this is what you need to do because I'm in charge and I'm going to tell you. Well, they're not going to listen to that. We're human. Who likes being told what to do? You know? Exactly. <laughs> Especially by someone who's very foreign. You know, very it's interesting. Foreign. In their household, they may have listened to men of their culture, their society, right. but that it was now this other patriarchal structure that's telling them what to do. Yes. Yeah. And it was even down to, and I say this, you know, when I talk about trafficking too and people who run safe houses, it was down to things like lotion. And I mm. said, well, you need, you have to understand that you're spending five, seven euros on a bottle of lotion or a jar, a tub that you're giving this women to use, for example and upset that they're not using it. But they're saying $2 for shea butter or cocoa butter or one of those cocoa butter lotions from the Africa store is all I need because Mm -hmm. I put your lotion on my skin and it does nothing for me. It doesn't work. Exactly. And it's like, I can't even control what goes on my own skin. I can't even determine what kind of lotion I use. That's a lot, you know? Yeah. And so it was, it was quite an interesting experience for me. And that's, it was later on I found out, oh, that was cultural mediation. That was translating one culture to the other. Mm-hmm. And I started off doing that in Germany for a while and then eventually moved to Amsterdam. Okay. After taking a course on the global sex trade, understanding human trafficking, what it looks like globally, how to get involved. And I was like, yep, this is it. This yeah. is what I want. And yeah. so I moved there and I was working with the organization in the red light district there, just reaching out to the women who were working in prostitution, those who were trafficked and basically being there and being able to help in the ways that I could. And then at the same time, I volunteered with an organization called Fair Work and they were focused mainly on labor, uh, human trafficking for labor exploitation, which is huge. Mm. And actually the largest form of trafficking really. And so- Yes, because it's also because a lot of the time when there's labor exploitation, sometimes there's sexual exploitation in between as well. You know, you have the two. And so I started to volunteer with them and they were the ones who reached out to me later on and said, MSF is looking for, well, in the Netherlands, it's Atis on the Grenze. And they said, they're looking for somebody with your exact profile. Like, could you just reach out to just have this conversation with them? We told them you would be the one. And so I thought it was just a consultation. Mm-hmm. And so I went meeting and they were like welcome to the team and I'm thinking what team I have a job <laughs> like welcome to the team we're so glad you joined us I was like what I remember they're talking about the Aquarius and the Aquarius and I showed a police friend of mine I said they want me to do a project on the Aquarius and she goes Sarah Sarah you know this is a boat right you'll be working at sea I was like wait what <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> like, right. somehow <laughs> And so I started to read up on migrants at sea, what that looks like, what are the experiences. I just started to read up a bit more on it. And I said, no, I I need to do this. I have to do this. So I took the job. They sent me for a training for a week. And then I did my orientation. And the next thing I was in Italy waiting for the team. So was the boat um, like a docked boat or a sea boat? It was a sea boat. It was a, uh, it's... um, well, they made it into a rescue vessel, but 
So it used to be a research vessel, and then it was remodeled or redesigned to be a rescue vessel. So the MV Aquarius, I'm trying to think of the the largest number of people we had on board would probably be about 800 people. Wow. So it wasn't a small boat, wow. you know. It's like a cruise ship. Uh, not that big, no. Oh, I mean, what? maybe like a small cruise ship, you know, because it's not like we didn't have that many cabins in it. Okay, okay. We had just maybe large areas where, where yeah, they exactly. the large areas outside. We had the, another container for the hospital and things like that. Got it. Yeah. So I went on the Aquarius and we sailed. I never sailed in my life. Mm-hmm. See, and I tell people, I say, nothing ever prepares you for your first rescue. You think you understand what it could be. You think you, and then we saw this raft, a dinghy. The people, mm-hmm. um, the African migrants, they call it the Lapa Lapa. Lapa Lapa, yes. Because they, they kind of lap each other, the way they sit astride. Mm-hmm. And you see a dinghy that should not have more than 30, 40 people with about 170 to 200 people in it, just wow. drifting at sea. And you, nothing can prepare you for that image. And right. they're, you know, sometimes there are dead people in there, their yeah. children, their pregnant women, they're dehydrated. Yeah. Um, depending on, we started the mission that I joined in August. By November, mm-hmm. we had some deaths from hypothermia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really cold. Mm-hmm. And they usually didn't wear much because they had to fit in as many people. Yeah. 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 So, yes, I was at sea for a while and then went back to sea on another MSF vessel, which was even bigger. The Vos Prudence had. I think 1,200 people on it at one time, one of the rescues that they did. So when you're you're at sea, you're basically picking up people. It's like a basically rescue vessel. So until it's full, it stays at sea. So we would stay at sea until we had at least 500 people on board. But we didn't stay if we only had 300 people or 200 people. Hmm. And there was no other NGO vessel close by that was headed back to Italy. Hmm. We wouldn't stay at sea with those people for a week. We would okay, stay for maybe two days maximum and then bring them back. Because it's also not fair to be like, well, you have to be here until, you know. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we would always coordinate with other organizations, like save yeah. the children or sure. the Coast Guard and transfer and send them back. Because we had the biggest vessel. So the plan of the Italian Coast Guards always wanted our vessel to be quite full before headed back. Wow. So then when you would dock, when you would come back to shore, mm-hmm. people were then transported to refugee camps, some of them sent back. How? What was their life like from there? So, so my job was to identify vulnerable potential victims of trafficking or victims of trafficking. Okay. And so I would explain to them, to the women, listen, while you were in, in Libya or when you left Nigeria or mm-hmm. Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire, I really focused on, especially on, on our West African women. Yeah. And black women and said, if somebody promised you a job or somebody promised you this, or if you're a Nigerian and you swore an oath, talk to me before we go to, to sea. And I would speak pidgin, Yoruba, English. Mm-hmm. Talk to me before we go to, to, you know, before we get to Italy, just come and see me. You're not in trouble. We just want to help you. And I would really break it down, explain and walk away. I didn't hound anybody. I didn't. Okay. And I found that just the morning of disembarkation or the night before we were going to arrive, it dawned on people when they started to see land. Oh, we're here, we're here. And then they would start coming to me. 
Yeah. Yeah. One of the other questions I always asked was, if you think you might be pregnant or you want to find out if you're pregnant, come to me. Mm-hmm. And they would always come to me, always. And my main question would be, if you're pregnant, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Mm. If they start crying or they shake their head, then I know they were raped. Yeah. And so I would just say, you know, you don't have to make any decision now. Let's go to the clinic. And then I would take them to the midwife or the doctor so they could do the test. And usually there was at least one person that was pregnant from rape. Mm -hmm. And then was it that they were typically raped in transit? In Libya, yes, in transit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly in Libya and in the desert as well before yeah. getting to Libya. Yeah, wow. Wow. And yeah, which is just, it's a horrible thing, really. The journey, the, the I feel like I was traumatized from hearing their stories, from yeah. seeing them. I cannot right. imagine what it's like to be them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So after arrival, we would refer the ones who, male, female, if we think that they will always suspect or we see evidence that they've been sexually violated or physically assaulted in any way, the mm-hmm. doctor will write the report. We would also prepare the form for the organizations on shore. And mm-hmm. once we disembark, then we hand over. Once they disembark, it's out of our hands. So yeah, right. you have staff from MSF, from IOM, from UNHCR, and mm-hmm. other organizations on the shore. And then they would then take over from there. Yeah. What's been beautiful for me to see is that now in the course of my research, I'm running into ladies that we rescued while I was at sea. Wow. And it's like, it's so surreal. Wow. Right. Because yeah. I don't recognize some of them. And they're like, Auntie Sarah, Auntie Sarah. And I'm like, first of all, nobody calls me that except women that I met at sea. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, how do I know you? And they're like, from the boat. And it's like, oh my God. Wow. You made it. Yeah. So how long were you there? How long were you on sea? The first mission was three and a half months. Mm-hmm. The second one, I think I was there for two or three weeks. And then the third one was another three and a half months. Okay. Okay. So we would go to sea, come back, go to sea, come back. Sure, sure, sure. So would you say the duration was about a year that the course of a year or just under months? a year? Under a year. Got just it. Under a year. Yeah, I had no idea that MS did rescues. Oh, you know, yes, I know yes. they have a huge operation across the globe mm-hmm. with different, you know, mm-hmm. refu- and you know, conflict-ridden areas. But the idea of the rescue—that's more reason to say, "Wow, what a place!" Yeah, that was quite. Yeah, that's when I really got to know a lot more about MSX activities as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And honestly, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it was lo- it was life-changing. That of course, of course. You know, I wanted to make a point when you said she could. You you really found it difficult to talk to children about the counseling and and the abuse because I have a cousin who is a psychologist. And when she was doing her PhD, she really had a problem as well with children, you know, and she family counseling is what she was focused on. She eventually overcame it, but I could totally understand because it was the same kind of energy that I got from her where it was just like so hard. And so for a long time, she just realized I, she had shut down part of who she was because she was doing this work. And so she's not practicing now. And I think part of it was the trauma that she also experienced in trying to really like deal with this. So, you know, shout out and kudos to all of those counselors that were amazing. Yeah. Those amazing people. Yes. Yeah. Because it's, when you say God's word, that's, you really have to, you know, have the patience and the perseverance of mind and heart. So I thank them. (laughs) Yes, I agree. And I thank them too. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So you eventually, you, that was your educational journey. And so how did you find yourself in 
Belgium in particular, because one of the things that I like to kind of highlight is two things. One is in your navigation in Europe, have you picked up other languages? And then also the mechanics of being able to, so you're mostly a student, I'm assuming you have student visas, but some of the kind of administrative aspects of being able to work in all of these countries. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about that. So I have a Nigerian passport, which is <laughs> any Nigerian, or I think most people with African passports can relate, um, is when you're traveling, you have to, it's like you do a double homework. Do I have enough money? Do I have the documents I need and the document to prove this document? I still do that even today. A credit yeah. card, my debit card, some cash, have everything mm -hmm. in hand. Because once you bring out that Nigerian passport, it's like you're a victim of trafficking. Are you a criminal? You know, which are you? Right. Yeah. And so... Interestingly enough, I feel like, I just feel like God's been, it's just been a God thing where everything has worked out, where mm -hmm. I've applied for visas and I've just always gotten them. I think I've been denied visas twice and those countries I've ended up going back to eventually. Oh. Um, but it's been really with the work with, there is a lot of openness towards humanitarians. Humanitarian work, yeah. And if mm -hmm. people know that you're coming to work to serve in one way or the other, it does make it easier. Or at least it did when I was traveling mm -hmm. at the time. And that's been really good. And then the more I worked, I would apply for visas somewhere. They would say, oh, you were in Australia. What did you do there? And then I would say, oh, I did this and this and this. And they're like, oh, interesting. I remember mm -hmm. the first time I went to Switzerland, I applied for a visa and I was at the Swiss embassy in Abuja. And the consular officer was looking at my passport and looking at me skeptically and trying to figure out if the passport was really mine or was it mm -hmm. stolen? Was I lying about all these things I said I had done? So he tore a sheet of paper and gave it to me and said, I want you to write your CV. And I said, well, I could just give you a copy. He said, no, I want you to write it. So oh. I was like, okay. So I went into the room he sent me to and I wrote down as much as I could remember of my CV sure. and, and the timeline. And then I gave it back to him and he was like, okay, all right. You can come back and pick up your visa in three days. And I was like, <laughs> okay. But I remember telling a friend of mine and she's like, I don't think I could write my C I don't remember. She's like, I think I would be so stressed out trying to remember which course I took when that yeah. I don't think I would have been able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's an interesting test. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I passed that test. Yeah. You know? oh, wow. It was, yeah. It was things like that. And then the more I traveled, the easier it became as well. Yeah. And yeah, working with MSF, of course, that was also a good thing that made it a bit easy to say, okay, yeah. when they say, where do you work? Say, I work with Medicine Sans Frontier, then that also helps. Makes sense. Yeah. And they do a lot of the, some of the work for you for that. So that, so that, that helps. But yeah. I remember between, yeah, just thinking between when I worked at sea and before I started in academia, I remember just thinking, oh, it's so much work. You know, it's so much work. Even applying for a PhD is so much work because you have to look at PhDs that are open to international students. Right, exactly. Yeah. Because it's so competitive. Because even if you have, even if you have what they're looking for, if they have a student in their country with or a national, a citizen of their country, who may not have as strong of a resume as you do, but can start working right away because they don't need a visa, mm -hmm. sometimes they'll pick that person. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so it was recognizing that and just saying, okay, so how can I just tell myself and say, look, if you take me, it'll be for your own benefit because this is what I can do and this is what I can do. And mm -hmm. just keep pushing and hoping and get university. Ilse, it just worked out perfectly. Nice, 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 nice. So let's get into kind of the co-founding of your organization and, and what process you took for doing that. So 
your organization is called Co-Create. And how did you come up with the concept and, you know, just how did that come to fruition? So I started my PhD in January of 2018. In November of 2017, my flatmate, Nicole, who's one of my closest friends and is also one of the founding board members of Co-Create, and I were talking in our apartment in Amsterdam. I said, I'm in touch with some of these girls in Italy. They don't even have winter clothes. Mm. And how can we help? What can we do on our own? How can we just help? They're like, you know, a number of women that I know, young ladies, mostly under the age of 21, who are trafficked, who are either in shelters or safe homes. And she said, well, let's see how much money we can get together and we can just... And I said, I don't want... I don't want to send them money. I don't want to ask people to donate clothes and take them used clothes. I just want us to be able to buy something good that will last them for years mm-hmm. and give it to them directly. And flights are cheap between Amsterdam and you know Italy. So I said, yeah, why don't we just look that up? So we did. So I told my family and a few friends, Nicole told her family and a few friends. And within a, I think within a week, we had over a thousand euros in donations, maybe almost 2000 even. Mm-hmm. And that made me uncomfortable because it was coming to my personal account. And I didn't like that because I was like, well, it's not my money. In fact, I'm telling you, Florence, I still have the receipts in my cupboard. Because I'm still like, in case somebody asks me one day, what did you do with all that money? (laughs) I still have the receipts, (laughs) the paper receipts. You should probably scan them. And so I, and people, and then a bunch of other people said, we want to donate, but we would rather donate to an organization. Sarah, when are you going to make this thing legit? We've been telling you for years. Because I had always said, there are enough organizations. I'm not going to set up one. Mm. I'll partner with the existing organizations. Mm-hmm. And so we went to Italy. We saw the girls. We gave them, you know, we, we bought some jackets. We bought soap. We bought shea butter. We bought just the basic things that we knew they wanted and needed. And they were, oh my gosh, it was like the best thing we could have done. They were screaming, wearing the jackets, wearing the boots and the socks. Because one of them was wearing flip-flops in winter in Northern Italy. How is that, you know? So this was still in a camp? Yes, they they were were in camps. Yeah. And what's the, I've seen, you know, shots of outside of a camp on TV, but what does it look like, this camp? So their camps were actually houses. From the outside, you just think, oh, that's a big house. Got it. And then it has maybe six, seven rooms, and each room has two or three women in it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they had a, a communal area, the living room, the kitchen, and everything was run by associations and organizations. Okay. So and boarding. Association, sorry. So they're boarding houses. Yes, exactly. I think that's a, a good way to put it would be a boarding house. Mm-hmm. And the associations themselves were dependent on donations. So mm-hmm. they had money from the government and then donations. And so they also gave what they had. And sometimes it was shoes that were too big or too small for some of the residents. Mm-hmm. And so we went and it's honestly, you can get a really decent pair of boots for 30 euros, yeah. you know, something that's decent enough, at least that would help last one winter. Yeah. And so we did, we went and we looked for, I'm, I'm the best at finding flights and hotels and also shopping, finding deals. That's my superpower. And mm-hmm. so we found all these like really good things. We bought them, we packed our luggage, carry on, and we went to Italy and we just gave them to the girls directly. Didn't want to give it to anybody to give anybody. We wanted them to have it. Yeah. And we didn't take any pictures of the girls' faces. We took mm-hmm. a few shots of their feet or mm-hmm. like a video shot from behind, but nobody needs to see the faces of these women. Like they're not, you know, it's not a zoo. And so we, we took some shots just to be able to say to donors, look, thank you so much. And then, you know, the ladies were very grateful. I think we had a few voice recordings from the women saying, thank you. 
mm-hmm. and we came back. Mm-hmm. And so when we got back, we said, we want to do this every year. How can we keep this up? We can't do this if we're not registered as an organization. Yeah. And also I need I need this to be transparent for my own integrity and just for accountability. That means I need to register an organization. And mm-hmm. the thing is, what we decided was, what's missing? What's the gap? What is needed in the anti-trafficking movement? When you're working with vulnerable groups and refugees and victims of trafficking, where is there a need? And one of the biggest needs, one of the biggest requirements and requests I get is for training. People are like, we need training on how to work with victims of trafficking. We need training on support, self-care, burnout, vicarious trauma, purity. And I was like, great, that's my thing. When I lived in Amsterdam, I ran a training every year. I love training and I'm a networker. So even if I can't provide the training, I probably know somebody who can. Mm-hmm. So as co-create, we decided we would come together and we would provide training for people working with vulnerable groups. And okay. in the long term, we want to be able to train the women themselves in different areas as they try to start their own lives again and try to you know, integrate into society in a different way. What kind of trainings can we have available? And that's what we're working on right now as an organization. We really want to focus on training and helping them in a way that's sustainable, that it's not just, oh, let's teach you how to make jewelry that you can sell for one euro at Christmas time. What can we do that you would be able to earn money off consistently and and carry your life. Yeah, make a living. Yes. And so that's been our goal. And we want to stay committed to helping women individually. So if somebody we know or a group we know uh, is in need of tampons or sanitary towels for the shelter, okay, how can we support you with that? If a woman reaches out to me and says, I found a job, I just, I don't have enough money to pay the babysitter to take care of my child while I go to work. Maybe we mm-hmm. can connect an organization there to do that, or we can pay for the nanny. So these are things we're looking into Got and it. see how we can do it. And right now we're in the process of registering in Nigeria as well. Okay. So that was registered in Amsterdam. So that's in, a, in Belgium, here in Belgium. Okay. So you registered in Belgium. All oh, right. Because you've been in there for some time. Yes. Okay. So how was the process of registering an NGO there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's actually quite straightforward if you can read the language, you know. So like what language is it in? Is it French? Is it you know, speak French? Like <laughs> Belgium is an interesting country because for such an interesting country, it's so diverse. They have three yeah. official languages, French, yeah. German, and Dutch. And so I live in the Netherlands, so I could read Dutch to an okay. extent. Now my Dutch is much, much better. It's advanced. I can read and I can understand and I can speak better. Mm-hmm. But when I started, I could just read and understand the idea of something. But what my lifesaver was finding an accountant who was fantastic. Okay. And so I found yeah. this accountant who didn't even charge us much. He was like, no, 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 come, let's have a meeting. I'll talk you through it. There's a lot of information online. For example, there's the Square, which I think is an expat platform in Belgium that has a lot of information about mm. for, for you as a foreigner in Belgium or in Ghent, here's what you need to do. If you want to start a business, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And so I read up on it, found all the information, contacted the accountant, told me what to do, but all our documents had to be in Dutch. Oh, so wow. it was me, there was Nicole, who's American, and then my colleague, Sophie, who I co-authored the book with, okay. I asked if she would join our team, which was perfect because then you had three of us and Sophie is from Belgium. So okay. that was great because she speaks French and Dutch. Okay, good. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, and um, so that's how we started. We put together the constitution, had Sophie read it, and Evert, who was on our team at the time, also go through the Dutch to see if there were mistakes, submitted okay. it. It was returned because there was an error, submitted again, and then it was approved. The process here is really straightforward. If you have all your documents and submit it, it's pretty direct. Right, right, right. right. Well, that's good. Congratulations on that because even, you know, I have a, my business here in Ghana. It's kind of straightforward, but you know, in most African countries, you need a middleman to do everything for you. Like I obviously probably do it all myself, but you know, obviously better to pay the middleman to get it done faster and they work through the system. And I had to leverage my Ghanaian citizenship because Mm -hmm. if you're there, it's a whole nother thing. So that was kind of what I was trying to understand. You being a foreigner, that you have a a Belgian person on your team that probably helped facilitate making everything smoother. Oh, I'm I'm sure it did. Yes. And of course, that I live here helps. But it's true. My accountant actually said, do you have a Belgian on your team? I said, yes. It was like, oh, good. Yeah, Because exactly. we had asked her to join because we wanted to work with her. But then yeah. realizing, well, actually, yeah, it's great that she's on the team. <laughs> exactly. Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Sarah Areyinka. Please be sure to join us next week for part two, where Sarah tells us more about her work in Belgium and her book, Nigerian and Ghanaian Women Working in the Brussels Red Light District. You can catch us with a new episode every Tuesday at www.localcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please do share, like, subscribe, tell somebody, recommend a guest. We love to hear from you. So until next time, bye for now. Bye.